Welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective group of experienced M&A and post-merger integration professionals located in Europe, the UK, the US, and in Asia. We know each other professionally and personally, in fact, worked on many deals together. Uh, for more information on the individuals that you're hearing from, please go to our website. Every week, we'll be discussing a topic which is hitting the headlines of M&A currently. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities of the deal? How's the leadership managing it? And what might we do differently? As anyone who knows us would, would say, we're never short of an opinion. Welcome, everybody. Uh, in an unusual twist of allocation of responsibilities, uh, I'm going to lead the discussion today, partly because today's discussion topic, which is the article uh, regarding Hawk Tang Tan, who is the CEO of Broadcom, and his growth and acquisition strategy, and the company's perceptions of how that strategy is formed and, and the implications. And I think this will be controversial to some extent because unlike many of the other conversations we've had, where the real focus is on the human organizational aspects of M&A and, and consolidation, um, the article really deviates very specifically away from that, meaning thinking about the strategy that Broadcom is undertaking really doesn't rest on the organizations or people working together. And so in this respect, it's a little bit different. And, uh, but I think it also highlights uh, maybe some more nuanced ways in which corporations function um, that is different from the traditional integrated corporation. And so I know that with that long introduction, maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to David to get your views on, on the article, what your sort of impressionistic reactions were when you read it, uh, what, what your thoughts are on the strategy that Broadcom is sort of pursuing. Thanks, Javier. I mean, the, the article really interests me. It, it's, what Broadcom are doing is, is in some ways just, just classic, simple, scaling the organization, very big acquisitions, bolt them on, become a really big beast and a really big player. And then one of the questions that it does pose is, how far can they go before the regulators in different countries start putting a limit to their their power? And what are, I suppose, the technical deals they're going after? Uh, and how does that play out as a strategic point of view? And, and that's all, all, all kind of brilliant, fantastic. And I think what you're highlighting is there's a question then to say, what does that mean in terms of the organization? You know, all the practical kind of cultural stuff, what's going on there? But also what quite interests me, aside from the, the regulatory players, how long, you know, how far can they go before they hit those barriers is what's really going on with that within that organization. You know, when you see a, a you know, $69 billion deal, what does that really mean for the people in the organization there? What's happening to deliver the value? I think, uh, Ben, any, any reactions, thoughts from your perspective? Well, you wouldn't be surprised 
to hear that I I did look at the human aspect of this process to some extent. But I was particularly interested in in the profile of Hot Tan. I think he's a really interesting character. You and I have had a, a series of podcasts a few years ago where we started, started talking a bit about uh, Asian leadership. And I think there's a little bit of interesting over, you know, connection there between what we've seen in Asia, um, particularly around the sort of slightly cannibalistic nature of, of Asian conglomerates, where they really are very happy for different divisions to uh, compete with each other very actively. And if they don't perform, just close them down. So that's a that's a that's an interesting angle to me. I I, I also I, I like him enormously because I think he he just tells the truth. I mean, there's no debate about what he's doing to his business. There's no discussion. There's no hiding anywhere in terms of what he does and how he does it. Um, I think some of those stats, I saw some um, statistics in terms of uh, some of the numbers uh, around the, the operating margin, which are, I mean, I know we'll get onto valuation in a minute, I, just extraordinary. Uh, he talks about like, he's, he's kind of a frugal guy and you can see it completely with a business of that size with SG&A of, of, of 3%. I mean, it's just remarkable uh, as a as a business to have achieved uh, that type of, and that you know speaks to his. You know, no one's flying first class, right? Probably no one's flying anywhere in reality. You know, um, you know, he obviously pays himself considerable amount of money. I, the other thing about that that uh, openness is this whole commitment to uh, to free cash flow in terms of what he does with it. You know, fifty percent goes to shareholders uh 50% is he uses to invest further so th there's a sort of really extraordinary honesty and clarity about how he communicates with the marketplace uh, who he is as a person um and how that therefore translates into shareholder value that would that was my first impression no i think i think you know both of yours both of your comments rung true to me as well here's my my first reaction was when I read what he was, what what Broadcom was doing and what Tan was doing, was that he's basically just a classic conglomerator, right? The old school conglomeration where you're not even making a, a pretense of saying that the combined entity is two plus two equals five. So in that sense, he was sort of strikingly honest. Now I will say that I, I suddenly realized that maybe he's saying this because the classic, what I'd call the correct thing to say is that all these units are going to work together and there's going to be a two plus two plus five and there are a lot of synergies. And I, I said, why wouldn't he just lie about that? Now, one possible theory, Ben, is yours, which is he's an honest person and he's just calling it like he sees it. The other is, I wonder if this is a signal to the regulators. Conglomerator, if, you, if you're not going to integrate, then you really can't gain market power in the same way. If all he is, and let's take him at his word, if what he really is, is just forming a large fund of technology companies, each operating completely on their own, then it's, it makes it a harder case for the regulators to attack the VM, VMware deal. So I, I, I was, I'm one, the, the conspiracy theorist in me is saying that this was a carefully engineered article to signal to the world and establish some pattern that basically says we're not we're not a regulatory threat because all we are is no different than Fidelity's technology fund buying what they appear to be independent, pretty free free uh, independently run companies. What he's also trying to so do. Just on ahead. that, yeah. Just on that, I mean, I mean, 
You want to go down the conspiracy theory route? No, I, I want to just consider consider that. Can you continue that a little bit further, right? So, sure, sure. So you can see clearly that there is there is an intervention, right, that takes place. Broadcom buys a business, and intervention takes place, which achieves that magical shift in operating cost uh, around the business. He takes layers of management, and now is that him sending a sort of you know, an army of black Mercedes with dark suited, white shirted individuals that go in there with their dark glasses, remove people and then disappear again. Is that what happens? Or is it the fact that a CEO of the business that I've just bought, right, has basically got clarity about what the expectations are. These are the targets you need to achieve in the next four to five quarters. If you don't, you'll either be sold, closed down. And therefore, that, that sort of magically creates that sort of behavior pattern in the organization. If it's the latter, then he maintains his sort of honest perspective, which is, look, we just conglomerate, give people targets and operate like that. If it's more of the former, then you've got a bit more of a, there's a sort of invisible hand that's sitting behind this process. I do think, well, let, let's, for, for the sake of discussion, let's say that he's true to his word. You know what this reminded me of? is he's building a technology version of Berkshire Hathaway. So he's so there is a, mm. a a theory out there that basically says the following that large companies end up accumulating layers and layers of administrative wax. You know, functions that interfere in the capital allocation process and occasionally private equity firms in many cases and in this case Broadcom comes in and basically says, get rid of all of it and let's just start clean and focus. And if you need questions, if questions about capital allocation come into play, uh, call me up and I'll answer it. So Warren Buffett says, look, if you need $10 billion to expand the railroad at BNSF, you don't need an accounting team and a bunch of people and all these, you just pick, pick up the phone, call me, I'll give you an answer in half an hour, eliminating the need for about a hundred working groups who are gonna sort of solve it. So to some extent, I'm not saying that one of the things that at least private equity firms and people like them, like Warren Buffett at Berkshire, argue is they can cut through a lot of the administrative bureaucracies that people form and large corporations form. And in the, in, in the course of that, you know, make faster decisions with fewer people cutting costs and, and being more nimble. Maybe that's what he's trying to achieve if you take his view that none of these companies are going to be integrated anyways. It's all independent. I think that there's, and I have a, a particular philosophical point of view, having done private equity and studied private equity when I was in investment banking uh, and worked with them. There is a view that, and this is going to be controversial, that management, once they're comfortable in their job, get fat and lazy. And every now and then you need you, private equity exists because the public shareholders, thousands and thousands and millions of shareholders across thousands of funds, no individual investor has an incentive or has enough power to change that. And so pretty soon you see it once management starts buying private jets. That's the, you know, private jets, fancy offices in downtown expensive cities. And private equity exists to basically eliminate that because now they have one owner or a few owners to answer to. And it's interesting, it's not lost on me that, you know, um, Tan himself came into being backed by two private equity funds, Silver Lake and KKR, 
when his first company got bought. And so Avago was basically acquired. I think he sort of absorbed the lessons of how, how they operate and then went on his own acquisition spree. And my guess is he's looking for companies that either are amenable to that or where there's a potential, where there's a thick layer of admin that maybe can be removed. I, th- I think you're completely right. I think the, there is a real cultural play going on here where similar to private equity, but slightly different because it has the power of conglomerate to say, actually, in terms of whether it's partner sales or marketing, um, kind of overall strategy, actually, Broadcom can deal with that. We're extremely lean. We're extremely efficient. You don't need to worry about all those kind of, you know, and often that is where these high costs can get sucked in because you you get people playing with um, things that aren't maybe necessary for the, for the organization at large. Um, whether that's marketing communications or, or kind of partner sales. So that's a real interesting way you can imagine that you, you're suddenly now, you're assigned a Broadcom, you no longer need that team. You no longer need those hundreds of people that are doing that role. Um, but also I do think there's something going to be on the operation side as well, is that from my understanding, what we've seen in the industry is that his, his layers have built up in terms of technology stack for, for CIOs. They used to think that was a degree of strength. And actually what it's got so complex with the number of vendors dealing with, it's just too much complexity. So you've also got an industry trend to say, actually, if we're able to simplify things from a contract point of view with a single supplier, that will make my life a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But also I want to make sure that the technology stack I've got plays nicely with each other because those the, the layers create complexity, which create gaps that people can exploit. And so it's just encouraging maybe, I mean, it doesn't even have to be particularly overt, but just encouraging each of the different divisions within Broadcom to say, make sure your tech plays nicely with others is actually really good for the for their position in the market. That's true. I like that. I, like, I, I wanted to talk one about one thing in this, which is uh, it's fascinating because it's so counter anything that we've previously spoken about. In fact, the last one we talked about EY a lot. And the one thing that keep, kept on coming in the EY was what happens to the customer. He doesn't give a monkeys about the customer, right? Basically, what he's saying is customer acquisition cost is far too high in most of these businesses. What we're actually going to do is deal with sticky customers, stick the prices up until the pips squeak in the old expression, and sort of depend a bit on the apathy of our customers to change supplier. Um, and surprise, surprise, most of them don't, either because technology, they don't they don't think they can or because they're not brave enough around doing that. So, you know, it's almost like the end of the value chain is, sod the customers we're just going to do this because we know we're in such a market position it's not a surprise to me at all the businesses that he's buying because they're fundamentally market leaders and, and almost monopolistic in what they supply uh, in very specific and very deep sorts of ways around the organization so again it's a really different trend from perhaps some of the stuff that we might talk about from a best practice perspective i think uh, i agree with you ben i mean the fact that he was quite blunt about saying that what they're intending to do is you know raise prices first of all, goes counter to my earlier suspicion that this is a signal to the regulators, because the first thing that pisses off regulators is a threat that you're going to raise prices. So that's one thing that maybe I can withdraw my earlier suspicion. Uh, (laughs) But the other other thing is, you know, if you look at the history of the corporate world, companies that follow this strategy don't last long. So like in the 60s, mm. there was a whole trend of conglomerization. Uh, you know, Textron in the U.S. General Electric really aggregated a lot. Almost every 
large corporation in the United States went on an acquisition binge, kept a lot of their units separate, didn't really focus on getting synergies, and just said, look, you know, we're just a good corporate parent and we know how to be a good corporate parent. And a lot of those companies, General Electric most recently, have now, in effect, admitted failure, right? They basically said, you know, making light bulbs and washing machines has nothing to do with making locomotive engines. And uh, they've spun out into different companies. Well, they sold the uh, white goods, but they've... So it is ironic also that I'm wondering, is this the beginning of a new trend of this type of what I'd call a naked conglomeration, uh, because that was very out of out of out of uh, trend or out of favor for the last most of the last 30, 40 years, where you only did MA when it added real synergies and or strengthened the organization and things like that. And here's a person saying, no, we're not gonna focus on any of that. We're just gonna, we're just gonna buy stuff that's cheap, raise the prices or cheap by comparison, raise prices, let them run themselves and incentivize people in a more aggressive way. And so this is either a new brand of permanent private equity or uh, somebody who hasn't read the history of this strategy in the last hundred years. I, I, I'll just comment on, on two things on that. One is I think conglomerates in the context of, and in the UK, we would like to talk about Hanson. You know, th those were conglomerates which brought really disparate sectors together. We're talking about a conglomeration in, in a in a very small part, in a massive part of the market, but a very small part of the market in reality. We're talking about software, right? So, so from from a from a sort of institutional in investor, they might look and say, "Well, that's all part of the same bucket of activity that I want yeah. to invest in anyway," and therefore I've got less of an issue. The fact he said that saying there's no synergies, I don't do I really believe that? You know, possibly, possibly not. So that's I think that's the the, the first thing. I think the second thing, and I'd love your view on this, David, actually, I know as well, is, is there a sort of almost a counterplay to the sort of wealth of passive money that's going on here? Is this basically a strategy which says to an investor, you know, you've got 80% of your funds invested in, in the passive index uh, tracking type marketplace. I'm giving you something here, which is a play in a sector, which is nothing if not active, if you like. Mm -hmm. So effectively, I'm making investment decisions on your behalf in a really active way, which might give you a bit of spice in your performance um, that you wouldn't get from the index piece. And that's why it plays so well with, with either institute, both institutional and, and, and retail investors, because they, they look at that and say, okay, I'm going to get a bit slightly more performance out of this. And, you know, the rest of my portfolio sits there and does happily what it's doing anyway. And maybe that's a, a difference from perhaps the 70s and 80s where we saw mm. uh, that growth of conglomerates. I don't know what you think. What do you think? Yeah, I, definitely. So if you if you draw the trend out, I mean, that fits nicely with this, what we're seeing in terms of private equity, whereby there's so many secondary deals going on. It's just a, a constant share within the PE funds. Actually, you look at that and you say, actually, there is there's a way to improve that, which would be, as you said, long-term ownership, yeah. the Berkshire Hathaway kind of model. Yeah. Um, I, I love your phrase, naked conglomerates. I mean, that's, um, <laughs> that kind of resonates for me in terms of what we're seeing. And it does, I mean, just as an investor myself, uh, that challenge of saying actually that the common sense approach now, the guidance for everyone is to go passive. That's that's the way the sensible people do things. 
but actually if you understand businesses you you see actually that's terrible for a business because you know all you're governed thereby is your your quarterly reports and your quarterly performance and that's that's not a lovely that's not a long-term way to drive a business so there are, there are lots of different themes there where you say actually this really makes sense and it is a, a great way to go and equally the fact he says he's having too much fun you know it's lovely yeah. as in really really enjoying this this is a great great journey to go on but it, it does feel like as you say it's a bit of a road trip you know it, it's great fun while you're going somewhere but when his five-year terms up or the regulators say stop you've had too much fun you can't drive pricing anymore what's going to happen then i think well you, you uh, hit the nail on the head which because you stole what i was going to say and said it first uh, i'll just say it again which is i think that what what you know what you what Tan seems to be doing is combining the long-term permanent capital solution that Berkshire Hathaway has, which is they are a investor that never has to sell. The average hold, you know, his ideal, uh, Warren Buffett often says his ideal holding period is forever. Um, whereas private equity firms, they got a 10-year fund. They have to, the moment they get in, they're looking to get out. So he's combined the long-term structure that Berkshire Hathaway has with the industry focus that Silver Lake, which is actually the people who bought Avago, which he was running, that Silver Lake has, which is Silver Lake is a private equity fund that just focuses on tech. And so he's taken those two things and he said, well, the real structural flaw in a private equity fund is by the time you get in, you got three or five years to get out again and you have to figure out, and here he doesn't have that. His long to his holding period could be forever. And I think that he's sort of, maybe this is a new species. It's a combination of those two concepts put together uh, with layered on with some of the capital discipline and cultural change that being owned by Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway sort of brings, which is a clarity to decision-making. You have only one phone call to make to get the go-ahead to make a $10 billion investment. If you're one of these portfolio companies, it's simple and fast moving while being big and uh you know it, it may be that this is not it's certainly a new generation so so i have a question for you both which interesting he talks about as well but uh, and and david you've raised it already which is the sustainable he talks a lot about sustainable right sustainable growth not in the context of an esg agenda but in the context of buying a business that continues to deliver value if you like uh, and i suppose i uh, the, the challenge for me as you've already alluded to is is that possible if you can't continue to acquire things, or at least if you can't continue to acquire things of a size, right? Because it suddenly it becomes you know, it's 60 billion or 69 billion is the last deal. You know, Qualcomm, I know which you didn't get was I can't remember what the number was, but it was a significant business. So is he is he now basically stopped from those major acquisitions? Does he give that responsibility to his divisions to go and do? And so you're getting to smaller type of deals, but again, the, the possibility of confusion gets quite big there. So it, 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 is this is this road journey, road trip that you're describing, David, is it coming to an end because he just hasn't got anything else to gobble up anymore? Or, and if not, do we think that he can generate the same sort of return from an operational perspective without the M&A? Yeah. And so part of the question for me is once you've done the asset stripping, strip out the layers of management, get rid of the corporate chair, really uh, get things down to their, their bare bones. Actually, is that a sustainable business or not? Or do those businesses and divisions actually need some of that fluff to grow and to maintain and to evolve? 
as organizations so if what he's buying is the divisions are able to kind of sustain themselves and, and keep uh you know number one position in the market then fantastic uh if actually they start to see decline he's going to constantly need to bring in new acquisitions just to, to stay where he is uh, and i don't know which way the dynamics going to go i mean i i think that over time the increasing regulatory pressure is is not going to subside right the bigger you go the more people look at what you're doing and i think david to your point i think it's going to get harder certainly to grow by acquisition going forward right he i think if anything the focus may shift to to having smaller acquisitions at the portfolio company level and add-ons and bolt-on acquisitions as opposed to transformative acquisitions like VMware and the attempt at uh, at Qualcomm, um, both for regulatory purposes. Also, there are just fewer of those to go around. The, the other thing that I would add to what you said is uh, there was a discussion about the risks that an impending um, conflict with Apple might bring. And Apple, like any customer, doesn't want their suppliers to be too powerful. And Apple, in order to reduce the power of people like Qualcomm and, and Broadcom, has actually started, and Intel, started making their own chips, Apple Silicon, which are the core of a lot of the new phones and things like that. And so, to some extent, the other thing that may slow down this is the bigger you are, the bigger target you become for, and you know, just in order of magnitude, $250 billion is just how much Apple has on its balance sheet in cash. And so Apple is 12, 15 times bigger, I think, or something, some crazy more than $2 trillion. And so, you know, when they were 50 billion, this was a tiny supplier for Apple. Now they're becoming quite big and meaningful. And does that create new enemies that also act against, against the acquisition strategy uh, that, you know, he's obviously undertaking? I would say the chances of going from 250 and doubling are going to get harder than, you know, harder than they were to go from 100 billion to 250. You talked about naked conglomerate. I'm talking about sort of naked capitalism here. This, the, the, when you start to to remove decision making to one individual in an organization of that size and scale, is that something that that works or that continues to work in? in our increasingly sensitive world where that that level of power just sits at odds with lots and lots of the stuff that we're seeing out there in the marketplace. And I know the regulator is a poor protector of those rights, if you like, but uh, but is that is that does that actually work in the context of of perhaps people's agenda around what capitalism needs to evolve to going forward. Very big philosophical question. But you're, but you're, you're asking a question about inclusiveness and having a diversity of views and things like that, uh, and whether this strategy flies in the face of that. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the thing I'll touch on for you saying that, Ben, is the public nature of it. So in private equity, that wealth is hidden to a degree of the specific individuals or the private you know the, the the wealth funds here you've got someone who is very publicly the highest globally paid ceo uh and that does i think that does change the nature of it slightly i do think that uh there is a 
it certainly makes things more fragile because one of the, you know, not to delve into the organizational and psycho psychological aspects of running businesses, but when you have one person who has a lot of influence in making decisions, the decision-making becomes more fragile, right? Because uh, the other is that person often grows to believe that they know more than they do. And there's sort of this epistemic blindness that happens where they start making decisions about things that they're not qualified to make decisions about and start making mistakes. And you've seen this, you know, that's why large, these types of large companies have trouble over time is because a totalitarian or authoritarian leader basically makes all the calls, even about things they don't know anything about, and it causes uh, damage. And that is a risk here. However, I don't know enough about Broadcom to say maybe he has, he is really part of a team and gives a lot of deference to the opinions of a diverse group of people. It just so happens that they needed one person to interview for the FT article. And so I would suspend my judgment on that until I understand the types of people who are at the senior management level of the organization. Uh, but absent that, you know, given his pay, uh, this is likely to be a situation where he has a disordinate, an inordinate amount of, of influence. But I, but I would say, you know, this is a, uh, a fundamentally different type of business than we have talked about before, where the impact on operations appears to be at a high level and at a philosophical level, at least, in terms of the impact that the parent has, uh, it tends to be much more the mindset of an investor uh, as opposed to the mindset of an operator. And uh, there was surprisingly little, and I think maybe we can have a, I can do some, we can do some research around how Broadcom exists as a culture. It is possible, and I'm only hypothesizing that maybe Broadcom infuses a culture into its portfolio companies to behave in a particular way and think about things in a particular way. This parenting advantage that people in corporate strategy have talked about, which is like General Electric said, we don't really know more about locomotive engines than the people running that division, but we, we know how to build and train and, and educate management and incentivize them in a way that no matter whether they're running a locomotive business or a healthcare business or something else, they can do it better. Fantastic. And my last thought would be maybe it's the, the culmination of our original discussion around when Asia meets um, the states. Uh, this is this is this is the ultimate outcome of that of that scenario. I think that's um, that's an interesting thing to play with. Um, uh, that's it. I think I think we're done. We will speak next. We'll we'll decide what we're going to talk about next week. That's good. I want to give some credits to the the band playing in the background. Of the, you'll hear the soundtrack. I think if, if people have asked me about it. A band called Sanica, um, uh, who did that for us. Um, so uh, we will see you very soon. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to talk to us or get in touch, uh, we're available on LinkedIn and Twitter. And please listen into future podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.